0: Uh, join me, Acts chapter number 10, if you would, Acts chapter 10. Um, I thought this week how that the whole book, and I know some of you have been with us, um, whether you're online or here with us in person. Some of you have been with us from day one when we started, at, back at the start of the year, uh, in chapter one. Um, and so I was really thinking how this book has built, and, and you have a major advantage if you've been with us. But even here, uh, there's certain chapters within the book of Acts that build one upon another this one like like throughout the chapter is what i'm saying like you have an advantage because it's a narrative that the whole chapter is central and it's all connected I'm thinking of chapter 2 is like that, the whole thing of Pentecost. Chapter 3 and 4, those of you that maybe remember that, there was a lame man healed and there was a message and they kind of got in trouble with the Jewish authorities and all that that followed. Chapter 7, do you remember chapter 7? That was Stephen's address and all this history of Israel and that whole thing just kept building and building. And then this chapter is one that really builds one upon another. But listen, if you're with us today, it's the first time. Uh, that's okay, because everybody here knows that I give a quick review, okay? All right, so in a moment, and a little warning, uh, we're going to finish today's text, not at the end of the chapter, uh, we're going to have an awkward spot, I just, there's too much in the last few verses that I knew I couldn't get into, so we're going to finish at verse 45, which is going to sound, feel a little weird, that's okay. So here's the scene, everybody ready, let's review, get our minds in the context Early church has begun. It was all Jewish. There were Gentiles in the church, but they had converted to Judaism. And after becoming Jewish, then they became a Christian. But then we hit up into chapter 8, and then the Samaritans, half-Jews, entered the church. So we had Jews in the church, then half-Jews were brought into the church. And then we're now in chapter 10, and we're going to find the last group, the kind of people that are going, and that's for most of us. Gentiles are going to be brought into the church in this chapter. And so the the test case, uh, the study of this, is it going to work, is this man named Cornelius. Cornelius was a soldier. He was a centurion. He was a Roman officer, over 100 soldiers. But he was, listen, he was a good man. We're talking morally compared to other people. Cornelius was, compared to other people, a really good man. He was a God-fearer. That tells us that he had left the pagan religions... He wasn't serving those gods. And he was actually serving the one true God of the Bible. And the wording insinuates with what we've learned historically is that he apparently would have gone to the synagogues. And he was hearing the Jews talk about the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. But he never went the whole way and became a Jewish proselyte. He's still just studying and he's praying. He's praying all the time to this God, but he's not becoming Jewish but he's a really good man, and he gives money to the poor Jews. And all the time, God is taking note of this. He's praying. He's a good man, doing good things. God's not hearing all of his prayers, but God is hearing one particular prayer. It's very clear when you take the whole context of this in the next chapter. He's asking God to show him how to be saved. Somehow this man knows that just becoming a Jew is not going to cut it. That's not going to cut it anymore. Remember, Jesus has died on the cross and resurrected some seven, eight, nine years earlier. Somehow he knows that's not it. Lord, would you show me? I don't know the wording, but the idea is. And then finally, God answers his prayer by one day he's praying at three o'clock in the afternoon. And an angel shows up. And so he sees this angel, and the angel says, Cornelius, your prayers and all your giving that you've been doing has come up before God. And so here's the answer to your prayer. You need to send down, send some men down to a town about 30 miles away called Joppa. And there's a man there named Simon Peter, and they are him very specific instructions. And so you're supposed to send, and he will tell you what you need to know. So that's part one of this chapter. The next thing is as his three men, he sends these three men They're drawing closer and closer to the 30-mile trip. The next day, it's about noon, 12 o'clock, and the man that he was sent for is the Apostle Peter. Peter's up on a rooftop, a flat-top roof, and he's praying, and in his prayer, he gets this wild vision. There's this enormous sheet, and it's bound by its four corners. It's let down to the earth, and when it falls open, there's all kind of animals. I mean all kind of animals, and reptiles, and birds, and God... On this rooftop, in this vision, very clearly tells Peter to get up off his knees to go kill some of those animals and start eating. But there's unclean animals. The Jews were told in Leviticus 11 what animals were clean to them and what were not. And he knows there's unclean animals in that. And so he tells God, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to eat those animals. I've never done it and I'm not starting now. I'm not doing it. But then God tells him, Peter, what I have cleansed, what God has cleansed, don't you call unclean or common. In other words, we preached on this. You'd have to go back and study it again. Peter, I'm changing the dietary laws, but really he's showing him something more, that it's not just about animals. These animals are symbolic of what was unclean is now being allowed to be clean in God's eyes. And so the real point was Gentiles. He doesn't realize it. And so he's on this rooftop and he's really contemplating, he's really... Perplexed, and he's pondering, he's still praying, and then the Holy Spirit tells him very clearly, Peter, there are three men downstairs. They are looking for you. I want you to go down, and you will go with them. I have sent them. I am with this. And I want you to do this without any kind of bad conscience. You just go with no hesitation, making no distinction. Probably Peter's wondering, what kind of men are they? Well, sure enough, it's three Gentile men representing another Gentile man named Cornelius. And so off he goes. He goes downstairs and he says, you're looking for me. And he asks, why are you here? And they end up telling the whole story of how Cornelius had a vision himself. Peter hosts them in his house. And the next day, he, remember this, he and six other Jewish men from the local church in Joppa end up making this trek back 30 miles north to Caesarea. And they get there a couple of days later. And when they enter this man's house, he goes in and he realizes... The whole house is full of this. It's not just Cornelius. It's his family, and it's his his close friends, and his relatives, and the whole place is full. And he goes in, and he lets them know, like, you guys know that we Jews don't do this. We don't come under, under a roof in a house that is full of Gentiles like you. Guys like me don't do what I'm about to do. We wouldn't be in here with you. But God has shown me that I'm not to call anyone unclean or common that God has made clean. And so that's kind of our context he's, he's now. And so in that con- he, he he then asked Cornelius, can you tell me how this all came about? And Cornelius tells him, four days ago, about this time of the day, three o'clock, I was praying, an angel said, God's heard my prayer, and he told me to send for you. You've been kind enough to come here. Thank you for coming. We're all here because you're supposed to tell us how to be saved and how to get right with God. And so we're ready to do whatever you say. With that in mind, would you look at verse 34? And I want to invite you, there's people in different, Mike kind of touched on it, where are we at individually in our walk with the Lord this morning, there's, do y'all know if we could have spiritual glasses and if we could see spirits and souls, we, we don't, do you know that you'd see some really bright spirits this morning and you'd see some living spirits that are kind of sickly in the group, but if we had glasses that could see spirits of people there's dead spirits they're not alive they're in this room right now and so wherever you're at any of those I want to invite you and even pray Lord would you please show me what I need out of this particular text out of this sermon so today's sermon for me is a sermon about a sermon it's a sermon about a salvation sermon so verse 34 Cornelius has just shared his vision we're all ready to listen to what you have to say So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. The idea there, literally the implication, there's an implied word. It's the word now. You know what? I now get it. What I now get has been true for a while. Really, it's been true in the Old Testament. It's especially been true recently. And I finally now get it. Verse 34. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. God shows no partiality. Every nation. Anyone. And then He starts His actual message. Verse 36. I'm talking to this room full of Gentiles. As for the word that He, God, sent to Israel... Preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. The wording there is very odd, I I admit it. You got to pay attention. Hey, Gentiles, as for the word that He, God, has sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He's Lord of all. Like, what is that? Parenthetical statement? Some have even offered that's the title of His message. This Jesus Christ that Israel's been hearing, you want peace? Your peace from God comes through Jesus, but he's Lord of all. Verse 38, 37. I'm talking to this Gentile crew, Peter says, you yourselves know. This word that's been preached to Israel, you yourselves know. that I don't know how he knows this. How does Peter know that they know this? You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. If you don't know much about the Bible, let me just insert southern Israel. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, southern Israel, beginning from Galilee, northern Israel. Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Again, you've got to untie uh, that. There's some time words in there. What that means is, here's the order, because he presents it as Judea. Southern Israel. Galilee, northern. But if you unpack it, here's what he's saying. The first thing, there was this baptism of John. And then there's this ministry of Jesus in northern Israel, Galilee. And then it culminates down in southern Israel, Judea. Look at it again. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God... This is what you know. This is what you heard. you already know this, Cornelius and family. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Not just talking about the devil possession, that's in it. It's all the manner of sickness. That Satan had inflicted upon people all diseases and conditions. Who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. How is he able to do this? For God was with him. Notice how he's just talking about Jesus and his ministry. 39. And we, I'll admit, is we, he, and is, is Peter doing this? And we, these six guys and me, or does he mean me And some men that you wouldn't know what that means were called apostles. I think it means me and these six. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews, in other words, throughout the whole land, and in Jerusalem. We have been witnesses of what's been going on and what happened with Jesus. They, who's the they? If you're looking at the verse, there's a clear answer. Get it in a minute. Peter says, we're witness to what happened all through the land and then culminating down in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him not from a tree like with a noose. Hanging him on a tree like you would hang a wanted poster on a tree using nails. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and he didn't just raise him up and he escaped and off he goes no god raised him up on the third day and made him to appear he made him appear not to all the people but to us who had been chosen by god as witnesses us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. They're paying attention. Yes, I mean what I just said. I've had meals with a man who's died. Yes, I've had plenty of meals with a man who's died. How did you do? God brought him back to life. In verse 42. What's implied here is this 40-day period. Again, I'm reading between the lines. This 40-day period between this resurrection of Jesus and during these times of being a witness to Jesus after his, after his resurrection Verse 42 happened, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge. He's the one appointed by God. God's appointed him to be judge of the living and the dead. And then the key verse To him, Cornelius and family, to him, this Jesus, to him, all the prophets bear witness. All the prophets bear witness to him. They're always talking about him. It's all been pointing to him. Saying what? To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, he gets interrupted. Peter's preaching. Man, he's going for it. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Everybody in the whole room, the Holy Spirit falls on all these Gentiles. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, that means the six Jewish guys from the Joppa church that just happened to come along, they're watching. The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. Let's notice three things this morning. Number one, back to verse 34 and 35, would you notice the universal scope of the gospel? The universal scope of the gospel. Peter's preaching to a group of Gentiles and here's what's unusual about this. He's not going to invite these Gentiles to become Jews. The message he just gave that you just read had never been preached to Gentiles. Again, we're not talking about Gentiles who, were, who had been Jewish proselytes. That's already happened. They were Jewish at that point. These are just Gentiles. Nobody's ever preached this. What gives Peter the confidence and the courage to go in and preach this message? To, nobody's ever done it. Why is he doing it? Four reasons. What? Number one, the rooftop vision. Number two, the Holy Spirit telling him, Do this. Number three, the perfect timing of God. God providentially bringing everything happening just the way it does. And number four, when he gets to the man's house, he finds out you two have had a vision. And an angel has told you to send for me. And I suppose everything is lining up. And so, man, I'm ready. This is what I'm going to preach. Never preached this before. Look at verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Now, I'm not going to camp in verse 35, but I need to say something just for a moment, all right? Lest we twist it. You see it? I now get it. God shows no partiality. But in every nation, notice I emphasize these words, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Everyone, any nation. But here's how another person might choose to read it God's no respecter of No no, no respect to a person. He shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And you may hear that and say, wait a minute. Is this teaching salvation through human effort and human works? Absolutely not. Uh, Apparently, what verse 35 is talking about is when a person gets saved, they have this reverential fear and awe of God, and they live a life that is pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. But here's what we can guarantee. I guarantee you this is not talking about salvation by works for three reasons. Watch. Number one, that would totally contradict verse 43 where he says everyone who believes on Jesus. Number two, it would contradict the whole message of the New Testament. In fact, the whole Bible, that verse, if if it's saying we got to work our way to heaven and God accepts us based on us living a good life, that goes against the whole New Testament, the whole Bible. Number three, Cornelius would not need this message Because according to verse 2, look at verse 35 again. In every nation, anyone who fears him does what is right. Look over to verse 2. you got your Bible open. You have an advantage if you have a Bible. You're not seeing this on the screen. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. This guy is way better than 99.9% of the people you've met. So if anybody was ever going to work and earn their way to heaven... If we were to twist verse 35, then this is the guy. He doesn't need to hear about how to get saved, and yet God has sent Peter to tell him how to get saved. So it doesn't mean that. You say, what's verse 35? It's connected back, and it's pointing back to verse 34. God has shown me he shows no no, no partiality. So what's partiality? Let me give you two examples. If I was the doorkeeper of something great, and you wanted to get in, and I get to decide who gets in, and I were to charge some of you, $100 $100 to get in. But others of you, I charge $20. And somebody else, I'm like, eh, 5 bucks, And somebody else, hey, I like you. You go right on in. What do I put that? No, you're free. I'm showing partiality. Here's another one. Three guys do the exact same crime, the exact same crime. And there are no other extenuating circumstances. I'm not talking about one of them turning states, evidence, and witness and all that. I'm not talking about that. I mean, they do the exact same thing. One of them gets 10 years in prison. One of them gets put to death for the crime. And one gets to go free. That's partiality. So what does the Bible mean? I truly understand now that God shows no partiality. This is talking about God as the judge. Let me differentiate. This is not talking about God as a benefactor. Can we admit that God as a benefactor bestows blessings proportionately, sovereignly as He chooses? All of us do not have the exact same blessings. Some of us have more things. Some of us have more ability. Some of us have less Some of us look a certain way and others look a different way. Some inherited stuff. Some, you'll never have an inheritance in this life. You'll not get one. You'll not leave. God is sovereign over all that and he bestows different blessings as he desires. What this is talking about is that God as judge. On judgment day, no one is going to be excused based on their nationality. That's what this is talking about. In other words, no one's going to come before God and say, hey, 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 I'm Hispanic. Oh, you get to come on in. Or, I'm Asian. I'm of Asian descent. Oh, you get to come in. Or, I'm from, I have an African descent. Well, you get, or, I'm white European. You come on in. Not even, what Peter's point here is, not even a single Jew is going to stand before God. And even with the great promises in Genesis 12, not one Jew is going to stand before God. And Like, why should I let you in? I'm a descendant of Abraham. That ought to do it. Oh, well, you get, No. Peter's point, there is not one way to go to heaven for Jews and a different way to go to heaven for everybody. It's, it's all one. And it's time for this message to be preached. And then we're going to get to the heart of the message, and that's the second point this morning. Would you notice number two, verses 36 to 43? Did y'all pay attention how that was written and all? Just kind of get the feel of that. He's preaching a gospel message. And let me just give you the pieces. Watch. John's baptism. He mentions John's baptism was a baptism where he dared to go out and tell Jews... You need to stop relying on being Abraham's descendants, and you need to repent of your sins, and you need to put faith in, in the promises of God, and you ought to, instead of expecting Gentiles to get baptized as they become proselytes, you ought to get in the baptismal waters as a way of confessing your sins, and all of a sudden, here goes all these people. In the so he's going to mention the baptism of John. He's going to mention Jesus' baptism. Getting, He gets anointed with the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, he has this ministry that he goes around and he starts doing, and then they put him to death, and then God raises him, and then he appears to people, and then He's, they're told to preach about Jesus being the judge and then the culmination of all the prophets. What does that sound like? That, this sounds like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Sounds like he's doing, his message is a compact version of the gospel, specifically, if you want to be detailed, Mark. Mark's gospel is what Peter is preaching in a very short version. Number two, would you notice? The salvation message always, always centers on Jesus. The salvation message always centers on Jesus. The salvation message, the gospel, the good news. Now, what is not in today's text, and it doesn't have to be, I thought about this, hey, there's no, like, getting lost. Because when we here at Graceview present the gospel, we present the law of God. This man doesn't need to have the law of God presented to him because he's been going to the synagogue. He hears the the Ten Commandments all the time being preached. He knows he's lost. That's why he's prayed, God, please help me. He hears all the time, I've not one day loved you more than anybody else. Yes, I've taken the name of the Lord. And you have too, everybody in here. Not one day have you loved God more than anybody else. Every, most every person in here has taken the name of the Lord in vain at some point in your life. And you're like, not me. You probably have, and you didn't even know you were doing it. You didn't even mean it. Every person in here has dishonored your father and your mother. Every person in here has lied. You've no doubt stolen something. You've coveted and lusted. You've had wrong, anger, and hatred. toward Everybody in here, we've just shattered the Ten Commandments. That's not in today's text because these people already know they're in a mess. But the gospel... The message of salvation, make no mistake, it focuses specifically on Jesus. Would you look at verse 36? Peter says, Now that I know the message for everyone, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all, you yourselves know. Watch. There's been this message that's being preached to the nation of Israel, and y'all live in Israel, you're in Caesarea, you're Gentiles. You're a Roman soldier. This message has been being preached. First, it was really started by John the Baptist, and then Jesus picked it up, and John the Baptist died, and Jesus picked it up, and then he ascended back to heaven, and his apostles have now picked that message. Here's the good thing. Most of the people in the land of Israel have heard this message, and all of the leaders have heard it. Unfortunately, most all of the leaders have rejected it. But many of the people in the land have accepted this message of how to have peace with God, how to have all good and peace, eternal peace in your life. It will come through Jesus, but unfortunately, most of the people in the land have rejected it. Many have received it. Most have rejected it. But you know what? He's Lord of all. It's time for this message to go out to everyone. And then verse 37, I alluded to it a while ago. What is this? He says, Gentiles, you yourselves know. I've tried to think about this. How does Peter know that they know? Does the Holy Spirit just tell him? Maybe. I'm I'm granting that. Maybe the Holy Spirit just lets him know, hey, y'all know. You guys already know the nuts and the bolts of the gospel. You already know the nuts and the bolts. I'm going to go over them, but you already know them. Or, practically speaking, I'm wondering if during the time riding up to, to Caesarea or, or that night that he had these men in his, in, in his house, does he just talk to them and say, hey, tell me about this Cornelius fella? Oh, well, he is this and that and the other is a really good man. How long has he been here? Well, he's here been this long. I'm saying this because the things that Peter is referring to actually go back to 10 or 12 years previous. I don't know when Cornelius got into the land of Israel. But apparently he's been there 10 or 12 years. And he was there at a time when this was being talked about a lot. And Peter knows this. And he says, you've already heard about this. But now I'm going to help you make sense of it. If you're taking notes, would you write this down? God in his sovereignty brought this man Cornelius and his family from Italy to Israel specifically so that he would hear about Jesus Christ. In other words, the one place on the planet you were most likely to hear about Jesus at that time was where he was at. So God, he doesn't even know it. Uh, Cornelius, get your stuff together in X amount of weeks. You and your family, the Italian cohort, you and these 600 men, you're heading out to Israel. Okay, what are we going to do? You're going to be in Caesarea, and you're going to be over that, and you're going to keep the governor safe, and you're going to kind of make sure everybody does what they need to. Just keep those Jews from getting out of hand, and off he goes. How long he's there, I don't know, but he's been there long enough for verse 37. Look at it. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. So if you're taking that note, here's the finish of it. God brought him to Israel to hear about Jesus, and then God sent Peter to help him actually fully understand and make sense of the gospel. He heard. He already knew the nuts and the bolts he knew some of the facts, but he wasn't able to really gel together and understand the gospel. And so God, you know what I thought about as you're writing that? We, ladies and gentlemen of Graceview, are surrounded almost every day by people just like Cornelius. They happen to live in a land where you, you can, if you want, turn on the radio today especially, turn on the radio, on the TV. You're going to hear somebody, if you just channel surf, somebody's talking about Jesus today today. And then, But God has put us here where people have heard about Jesus and we can help them make sense of the gospel. Because yes, it is true. There are some places on the planet where they have not heard about Jesus. But we've been put in people's lives in this land at this time. Verse 38. This message, what's been happening, skipping down. Talking about after the baptism of John, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. And then he went about doing good. And he went about... Healing all who were oppressed. What's happening? Watch, we're going through the life of Christ. Peter's just preaching. He's hitting the nuts and bolts, hitting the facts. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, 30 years before the event he's talking about, 30 years before that was conceived and became a human being. He grew up to a man. And at age 30, unlike everybody else who's getting baptized as a confession of their sins... Why does Jesus come? Jesus comes to John, and he's coming to get baptized. And what does John do? No, no. I'm not baptizing. I don't need to baptize. You don't need to get baptized. Yes, you do. There's something that needs to happen, and it'll make something super clear. Because God had already told John the Baptist, the one that you see the Holy Spirit descend upon, that's the Christ. That's the Lamb of God. And so John... Jesus gets baptized, and he comes up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit descends. And John now knows, and he goes and tells everybody, Behold the Lamb of God, that is the Christ, that is the Son of God. So what happened? He gets filled. For 30 years, he's been the God-man. But in a mystery that I don't understand, at age 30, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and when he does, Jesus starts this ministry. He had done no miracles for 30 years. But at year 30, for the next three years... And y'all been with us when we did Matthew, right? We got like 40 specific instances in the Bible of miracles that Jesus did. Healings. But as we went through, it was very clear. We're talking about thousands and thousands. Of what? Blind people. Deaf people. Mute people. Lame people. People with withered up hands. Suddenly it's not. People with leprosy. Leprosy's gone. People demon-possessed. Some of them so demon-possessed, they literally are trying to hurt themselves regularly, drown themselves, throw themselves into a fire, because the one in particular is so full of so many demons. He literally has superhuman strength. They cannot keep this guy in chain. They finally get him, put fresh change on him. He just breaks them. Finally, he just lives out by the tombs until Jesus comes along, and he casts all of them. Even his enemies acknowledge that person, that man does cast out demons, but they say it's because he's in a league with Satan But what was really happening is, no, it's because, look at verse 38. For God was with him. Even death. Jesus never came in contact with a dead person that he didn't raise them to life. Like, no case. No one's ever turned. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I can't help you. That one's a little too hard. Never. And all this is showing who he is. Until finally, verse 39. We are the witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Peter's preaching to these Gentiles. He says, we saw it all through the land, and we saw what happened in Jerusalem. And they, who's the they? What's the nearest clear noun? The the Jews. So, once again, this has been a very steady pattern throughout the book of Acts. The blame by the apostles as they preach has been placed for the death of Christ on the Jews. Listen, not all Jews, not all Jews of that day, the Jewish leaders of that day, but we know it was done under the sovereignty of God. He's in a Roman soldier's house. He does not say, those Romans killed us. No. Though technically the Roman soldiers are the one who carried it out, and there was even a centurion that was watching over it, he places the blame. Now, before you get here this morning, that's what I'm talking about. Those Jews, hang on, remember Your sin, your sin, my sin is what necessitated the death of Christ on the cross. God sovereignly caused those Jews to instigate and harass and hound and stay after the Roman governor until he couldn't take the pressure and he had Jesus crucified. But what makes his death so special? I thought about this. Study history. Here's what you'll find. There wasn't just a few people crucified back in Jesus' time. It wasn't even like dozens, nor hundreds. I can safely say there were tens of thousands of people crucified. So here's one. On this one day, in, in this one little city, one day of the year, there's three men. And on that day, Jesus, we know he was in the middle. So what's so special about this one out of the tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands, that are crucified you're taking notes, you want to write it down. I'll not give you the whole, well, in fact, maybe I will. The key to Jesus' death and what makes it so important is not on your note, but it's this. It's who he is. Who he is. He's not like the other hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of people. It's who he is. This is the son of God. This is the one who's only done good. So two key things. What makes his death on the cross so unique, so special, so powerful that we preach about it? Two key things. It's substitutionary nature and it's sin-bearing nature. That's what makes it key. It's substitutionary nature and it's sin-bearing Nature, you say, well, everybody is dying. They, apparently, they broke the law. Yeah, they're all dying for their sins. They're bearing a penalty for their sins, but he's bearing the sins of the whole world, every person who's ever lived, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, God, made him to become a sin who knew no sin. Pay attention right here. Pay attention here, verse 43. In verse 43, there's a promise of forgiveness that has to be based on something. All the Old Testament prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. There's a promise of forgiveness of sins. What's that base? Listen, ladies and gentlemen, you can't believe on this podium and get your sins forgiven. That will not help you. You can't believe on this chair, this little stool. Believe on the stool. No, it has to be based on something. You can't say, I'll believe in Jeff. I can't help you. It has to be based on something that's equal For God to forgive anyone's sins or everyone's sins, then something has to have been done. And here's what it is. The forgiveness in verse 43 is based on God punishing Jesus for the sins of the entire world and everyone who would ultimately put their faith and trust in Christ. That's what the promise has to be based on something. So as you're turning there and writing that out, I referred to 2 Corinthians a while ago, verse, chapter 5, verse 21. Let me read 1 Peter. You see that in your note. Once you've written that, would you look at the screen? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Watch. Take it in small bites. Quickly, just look at the screen. Watch this. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Taste that. Don't 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 move forward. For Christ also suffered once. Christ suffered one time. Christ suffered. He's in agony. He's in anguish. We know about the crucifixion. We make much of the nails and the spear and the beatings and the blood and the crown of thorns and all that and the shame and the nakedness. But really, it's that sin-bearing aspect and it's that substitutionary aspect. That's the key to the whole thing. For Christ also, wait, 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 why is he suffering? I thought he was perfect. He went about doing good and doing all these things. Why is he being killed? Because in God's foreordained plan, he had to die for us to have a chance to be saved. And so he is suffering one time for sins. Why? The second part of the verse. The righteous for the unrighteous. Watch. The righteous Christ. Here's the unrighteous Judgment is coming upon us. Christ comes and protects us, moves us, lets all the judgment. Let me have all of your sin put upon me. And all the wrath and the judgment of God is brought in upon him. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Back to Acts 10. So they put him to death. But God raised him on the third day. Now we're jumping to Easter. You see how we're just moving through the Gospels? This is Peter's message. Jesus' resurrection on the third day, I thought about this, and I just kind of went with what came in my mind. I could have given you a list. I didn't go back and look at old notes. Can I share four reasons why the resurrection of Christ on the third day is so crucial? Why is that so? In fact, it's important that it was the third day. Hear them first and then write them second, okay? Would you hear them first? I hope your mind's already going, well, I kind of know. I can tell you why it's crucial. In your mind, start forming lists. Why is it that Jesus' resurrection, that God raised him on the third day, why is that so important that, like, I think every sermon in the book of Acts always includes the resurrection? It's always in there. It's always a key focal point. Why is it so important? Number one, remember, Jesus staked his whole identity on being resurrected, the third day. They were getting tired of him. There's a group throughout multiple places, specifically in John. Hey, I'm paraphrasing. When are you going to stop playing games? You keep using this strange language. You're using veiled references and, and speech that we, that's just not clear. You're keeping everything kind of cloudy. When are you just going to make it clear and plain? Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? Are you or are you not? And Jesus says, Obviously, He is. You keep referring to God as your Father as if He's uniquely your Father, different than He's the Father of the nation of Israel. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? If so, give us a sign. Here's your sign, He says. This will be your sign. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, or in the the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and then I will rise again. In other words... If when I die, I'm going to die, I will come back to life on the third day. If it's not the third day, then you scrap everything I've ever said, and you'll know I'm not the Christ. If it's the second day, you'll know I'm not the Christ. If it's the fourth day, I'm adding, but here's the point: Third day, be ready. Why is it so crucial? Number one, Because Jesus attached his entire identity to his crucifixion on the third day. Number two, it fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. had to be done. Number three, get this. If you're going to promise people eternal life, then you better have eternal life. Does that make sense? If I would go here to Scott and say, Hey, Scott, I promise you eternal life. That's not worth the breath I used to give it. Because I of myself don't have eternal life. If you're going to promise eternal life, you better be able to show by your resurrection, Wait, you're Lord over death. And then the big one that... I always preach about the resurrection. Y'all remember this one? Why is it so important? Because it proved that God the Father accepted his death on the cross as a sufficient payment for sin. God raised him, showing, I approve. I accept his death as the payment for sin. So he's crucified and he's resurrected. Verse 40. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Get this quickly. God made him to appear. But he follows that, and Peter's honest. I tried to read that, how some would read it, with a little skepticism, right? But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Isn't that convenient? So let me get this straight. He died. He came back to life. But he doesn't appear to everybody. He just appears to some of you. Some of you. So what would we say to that? Well, number one, I would say, yep. God chose these people. Well, why not to everybody? What, did you think another miracle is going to convince people? You've seen all those others. You think if he had shown himself to you, you're suddenly going to believe? In fact, if you doubt that, just go study John chapter 11 and find how they tried to kill. They want to kill Lazarus. Poor old Lazarus. They're trying to kill him. You know why? Because he dared to be resurrected. Poor guy died. He was dead for four days. Jesus comes along, resurrects him, and just his life gives proof that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, this powerful Messiah, anointed one, and they're like, kill him. Why? Because he makes him look like he is what he is. And so what we need, they're not going to believe. So it's not everybody. It's just some, right? Quickly. Yeah, but here's the thing. Everybody can go by and look at his tomb and they all have to acknowledge it's empty. Maybe you didn't all see him. But everybody knows his tomb's empty. And that's him having said, I will rise again on the third day. Them having put Roman soldiers outside of it and they still couldn't stop it. He came to life. He came out of the tomb. He didn't roll the stone away. The angel rolled the stone away. Christ came out. He's alive. And he just didn't run for it. He ends up showing himself alive. Not to everybody, but let's be honest to a lot of people. Take this audience that's in here, double it, and add another 50% to it. That's how many people saw him at one time. Could you trust? 500 people in Galilee go, we saw him. If you're taking notes, write that down. Over 500 people saw Jesus after his resurrection. And what Peter is talking about, he's not talking about a fuzzy, distant, like, yeah, we saw a mirage. I I, I think it was Jesus. Somebody from a long way away was yelling, saying, I'm Jesus. Saw him one time. That's not what happened. He's talking about multiple encounters. He's talking about intimate encounters. He's talking about, not in this text, I get it, but he's talking about the strongest kinds of evidence that would prove this. We know that he shows his disciples his hands and his feet. Like, look, it's the exact same body. Me. This is me. That was put to death. He says, we ate with him. We drank with him. Ghosts. He's not a ghost. He's not a memory. We all had, like, are you seeing? Like, Are you... like? Take your time, guys. All of you can come touch me if you want. Like, Are you feeling like... like, like yeah, yeah, Same thing. Are you seeing steps when he walks in the city? Are you seeing this food disappear inside? Yep, it's him. Are you seeing this drink? Wow. This is under Scale of 0 to 100, what percent of, com- of convincing were the disciples that Jesus was alive? Scale of 0 to 100%. How convinced were they? Not 90, or 90? We're 90%. That Jesus is alive. We're 95. 99.9. No. They're 100% positive Jesus is alive. Why? Because each of the apostles except one. Sealed his witness. With a martyred death. Followed by. A life of persecution. And so we're moving through. This life of Christ. This message about salvation. He receives the Holy Spirit and anoints him as the Christ. He has this powerful ministry proving who he is. They put him to death, but God raises him again the third day. And he ends up showing himself to between five and 600 at least people who are 100% convinced that he is the Christ. That he's alive and he's overcome death. And in verse 42, Peter's preaching and he says, And after when we saw him... He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Now, here's what I realized. I started by saying, you may be here this morning. If we had glasses, we could see some are brightly. a Man, your spirit's just on fire for the Lord today. You're close to God and others. Maybe you just not had any relationship with the Lord this week. You've not been praying, not been in the Word. You're you're spiritually alive, but you're kind of sickly, and some are dead. But if we had that, we would be able to know definitively who's in what category. I'm thinking of the group that is spiritually dead. And you're sitting here this morning. You may be wondering like, why do I even care? I'm only here to make somebody else happy. Yeah, I'm I'm not a Christian. Why do I care? Why should I care? You should care because of verse 42. The Bible is clear that you're going to die. Hey, everybody listen to me. You, Newsflash. You're going to die. You are going to die. And when you do, you do not stop existing. In fact, I I can tell you confidently, you are just now beginning your existence. You're going to exist somewhere for eternity. And you say, where will it be? According to the text, verse 42 Jesus Christ is the one who's going to determine your final destination. Look, if you would, John chapter I'll just put it on the screen. John chapter 5. Look at verse number 22. Jesus, look at John 5, 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. The Father judges. So at this judgment, there's going, you are going to stand trial before Jesus Christ. Everybody in here. Everybody in here, you're going to stand and be judged and evaluated by the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father will judge through Christ. He's given all judgment to the Son. Here's what that means. Son, you make the call. Wait, I make the call. It's your call. Whatever I say over Mason, whatever I say is going to happen. Whatever you say is going to happen. Whatever I say about Avery, that's that's official. That's official. You get the call. And guys, I want to promise you, you can bank on it. Jesus is going to be true and faithful to God's holiness. And he will be true and faithful to God's grace. He'll be faithful to both. And Jesus is the one who determines the final destination of every person. You say, what do you mean he's going to be faithful to God's holiness? There's very likely someone, and by the way, America's full of people who believe in universalism. If you have in your mind, okay... I believe eventually, yes, God does judge everyone, but at the end of it all, He's going to let everybody go to heaven. You are in a pipe dream. You are fooling yourself. You are in a belief that goes directly against the Bible. Jesus is not going to get at the judgment and say, now, Father, I know what you said, but you gave all judgment to me. You know what? I'm in a good mood. Everybody gets in. He can't do that because that would be going against the holiness of God by letting people with sin come into the eternal kingdom. Plus, you can take great comfort in this, that Christ is not going to be like, you know what, I know what we said in the Bible. Father, this is me, right? Okay. I'm, I'm kind of tired of you guys. That Bartlett guy, I saved him in 1979. I'm not so happy with how he lived. After I saved him, I know we said we're going to give him eternal life, but you know what? No. None for you. I'm going to send you to purgatory, Bartlett. That will not happen. I'm going to send you to hell. No, he will honor the grace of God. He will do it. And that ultimately leads to verse 43. Here's the culmination. The whole point of his message boils down to verse 43. And he says, to him, hey Cornelius, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Hey, all the... Cornelius, family, all the Old Testament prophets y'all been studying over in the synagogue, all of them have been really, in one way or another, pointing to him and giving a main message. Even Moses the prophet wrote all that sacrificial system, that sacrificial system with all of its symbolism and its shadowiness It's hard to understand and the Jews didn't get it. The whole time it's been pointing to this message. Salvation is available for mankind, but it is only available by believing in Jesus That's it. And then that leads us to the third point today. Number three. Let's call this one the precise moment of salvation. Verses 44 and 45. One of my favorite chapters in the New Testament is Acts chapter 10. It has greatly influenced my belief system. And how I minister. Acts chapter 10, I believe, is the classic salvation of Gentiles. This is the blueprint. Would you look back at verse 43? You need your eyes open. Like, I'm going to ask you. Like, if, if you've not caught anything that's been said, you ought to pray. For everybody. Everybody ought to be like, all right, Lord, help me to get what's going on here. Look at verse 43 again. He's preaching his message. He tells these Gentiles to him, to Jesus. All the prophets bear witness that everyone, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. In verse 43 and 44, ladies and gentlemen, there are some amazing truths that we need to get about salvation. And so I want to build logically in the text. Let's just start right here. The way the text is presenting this, in verse 43 and 44, the text pres- are you with me? The text presents the falling of the Holy Spirit on these people as their moment of salvation. Does it say it in the text? doesn't say they got saved, but it presents the Holy Spirit falling on them. This is their moment of salvation. You say, Jeff, how do you know that? Multiple reasons. Here's one. Peter stops preaching. Does that make sense? He's going through. You've heard about Jesus. He got baptized. Holy Spirit came on him. He does all these miraculous things. They still put him to death. God raised him up. He shows himself alive. In that time, he tells us we're to preach about him being the judge. And oh, by the way, all the Old Testament's been pointing to him. And all the prophets are bearing witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of their sins. The Holy Spirit falls. And Peter stops preaching a salvation message. He pivots. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do all that point and then all of a sudden, Holy Spirit falls. He doesn't turn to the other six guys and goes, Whoa. That's something. Never seen that one. I didn't expect that. That's impressive. That's unusual. Well, That's a surprise. But as I was saying, you guys need to believe in Jesus. He doesn't do that. You Gentiles need to get saved. He doesn't do that. He pivots and he starts talking. Next week's passage how now that you're saved, you need to get baptized. This is their moment. Of salvation. Would you write this down? You're going to want to write it just in case you're keeping notes. Go back and look at it later. I want to make an admission. The text does not say that these Gentiles believed. The text does not say the Gentiles believed, but it is implied in verse 44. It's implied that they believed. Look again, verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who who heard the word. The implication is that they believed. And then that's why the Holy Spirit fell. It's implied by what happens in verse 44. You say, on what grounds? Hold on, on what grounds, Jeff? Here's the grounds. Unsaved people can't have the Holy Spirit. Come in them and on them like this. You say, what are you basing that on? Glad you asked. Look at the screen if you would. John chapter 14. Would you look at John 14? Take me a second to get there. I like to look at it because I know where it is on my page. I know it's right there. But anyway, this is my little technique. John 14. I'm looking at verse 16 in advance. Everybody with me? Disciples. John 14. I'm leaving. Where are you going? I'm going somewhere you can't come right now. Oh, we'll come right now. No, no, you can't come right now. You'll come later. Where are you going? I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's your hand. I'm going to the Father, and you'll come to the Father by me. But in the meantime, I'm now reading verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. I'm going to have to leave, but I'm going to pray, and the Father's going to give you another helper forever to be with you. Who's this helper? Look at verse 17. Even the Spirit... Of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You, my disciples, know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is pre Pentecost. Right now, the Holy Spirit dwells with you guys. He's going to dwell in you. But I'm going to pray that the Father sent send him in a special way. He'll be with you forever, the Holy Spirit. But the world can't have him. They can't receive him. These people in Acts chapter number 10, they receive the Holy Spirit. Tells me, they believed. They became a Christian. They got saved. That is their moment of salvation. You're in Acts. I do want you to turn here. Flip over to chapter 15. Flip to chapter 15 quickly. You say, I don't know that I'm buying the implication that they believe. Well, it's crystal clear in Acts 15, verse 7. So there's a church conference. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And there's this big big question: do Gentiles have to get circumcised and start following the law to really be saved? We'll get there. It's another great chapter. Plays off of the chapter we're in now. Look at chapter 15, look at verse 7. So there's this conference and the elders and the apostles and everybody's swirling. There's all this discussion. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that, this tells us it's been years. You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles, he's talking about Cornelius, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. I'm going one verse further. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So God, who knows the heart, recognized what they had. He had me preach it, speak it. They heard it, and they believed. He makes it very clear. They believed. That's why the Holy Spirit, because God was seeing belief in their heart. If you're taking notes, I want to write this. And I want to write it it quickly because I want to draw a very important point. In Acts chapter 10, verses 43 and 44, there are three things that are so tightly connected that they happen, in essence, at the same time. There are three things, in verse 43 and 44... That are so tightly connected that in essence, they happen at the same time. I'm going to break it down into three, and I think I'm, I'm giving you the order, but I mean it's faster than that. Do you all know the three things? What are these three things? Number one, there is belief in Jesus. Number two, there is forgiveness of sins. Number three, there is the receiving of the Holy Spirit. That happens so fast. So connected. It's pow. Yes the text does not say that they believe. Verse 44 strongly implies it. Acts 15. Makes it very clear that they believed. This is their moment of salvation. Three things happen in essence. At one time. They believe in Christ. They receive forgiveness of sins. Then they receive The gift of the Holy Ghost. In essence, at the same time. I want you to write that quickly because I want to draw it down to a point. Whether you're a Christian or not, if you're a Christian, I want you to get this. You need to get what verse 43 and 44 is teaching us. If you're not yet a Christian, you need to understand how this happens. Cornelius and his family were so in tune. Y'all, watch. They are so in tune with everything Peter's saying. They are locked in, they're tracking every word. They're not just tracking it here, they're understanding it. They're implementing it. They're heeding it. In the moment, everything he's saying, got it, got it, got it, okay, got it. So much so, so specific, so strongly tracking everything, that when he gets to this point, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. They're so in tune, so heeding and implementing, that as soon as he says everybody that believes receives forgiveness of sins, they do it right there. On the spot. Peter doesn't even have time to lead them in a prayer. They got saved. They're listening at the moment. If I believe you're saying I believe, done it. Boom! Holy Spirit fell on them. That is the pattern. The Holy Spirit was working so strongly in this room. And the reason I'm putting it this way is because the spiritual concentration and insight that is required for this to happen can only be done as a gift of God. God gave this group a gift from him of repentance. Repentance is called a gift of God. But this insight and this concentration that's heeding and following along, I mean, they're just, everybody that believes, pow, just did it. Here's the evidence of it. That's the pattern of the New Testament. Acts chapter 10 is how Gentiles get saved. Here's the elements and the order. I'm going to give you the elements and the order. There's a clear gospel presentation at salvation. Clear gospel presentation. There's an understanding of that gospel presentation. There's a belief in it. And then there's an immediate receiving of the Holy Spirit. And then, and only then, as we move to next week's verses, does that person, the people who are already saved, then they get baptized. That's the New Testament model. Let me say it again. Here's the order. Here's the elements in the order. You hear a clear gospel presentation. It makes sense. You believe it. You get the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Then afterward, you go public and you get baptized. After you're already saved. Would you look one more time at verse 43? Because it is so in keeping perfectly with everything that the New Testament teaches. To him all the prophets give bear witness that everyone, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Everyone who believes in, in him. I know you know these verses. I, I want you to see them on the screen. Do you know that, that that verse 43 aligns perfectly? Can we have John 3, 16? Would you just look at it? Look look at it fresh. You say, I already know it. Don't need to look. No, look at it. Look. Don't look at me. Look at it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The idea he gave him to die. He, He was our substitute, our sin bearer. That whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Acts chapter 16. Let's have that verse I quoted often. There's a jailer. He's scared to death. He's about, he's about to commit suicide. Before he does, he asks two apostles, Paul and Barnabas, Sirs, what do I have to do to be saved? Watch, watch their answer. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. John 3.16, he gave his son so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What do we have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Ephesians chapter 2. You won't see the word believe here, but you see the word faith. Look at the first line. For by grace, that's God gives it away. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works. You don't work for it so that no one could boast. Remember how I opened this morning by saying verse 35 in Acts 10? Cannot be talking about working your way to heaven. That would go against what this says. For by grace are you saved through faith. Let's put those four verses together. Verse 43. John three sixteen, Acts sixteen thirty one, Ephesians two eight nine. If a person, here's what the Bible says: If a person believes on Jesus, they get forgiveness of sins. That's what you want. They do not perish. They get eternal life, and they will be saved. Four ways of saying the exact same thing. You say, so, so what is the message? <laughs> Here it is: Jesus has done everything needed for us to be saved, so much so that God just gives it away for free to anybody that will believe it. That's it. Acts 10, 34, 43. Everyone who believes. John 3, 16. Whoever believes. Acts 16, 31. If you'll believe. It sounds like this believe is the key. I'm not the... Fastest person. Sounds like this believe is the key. What does that mean? Now dial in. Dial in so you can explain it. If you're unsaved, dial in so you can do it. If everything's hinging on believe, how do we do it? Believe means when you hear a gospel presentation... It makes sense. I'm not saying you become a theologian. I'm not saying you can repeat it perfectly. What I'm saying is Jesus, Son of God, anointed Holy Spirit, miracles, died on a cross, resurrected, like he said, showed himself and proved it. He's the judge. Everybody believes. I understand that. Well, that's part of believing. Secondly, it means, I agree with that. It means this, and it happens in a moment. These people, you say, well, they didn't stop and confess their sins. They're here because they know they need to get saved. That's why they've sent for the man of God. Show me how to be saved. My sins are going to damn me to hell. And I know that by becoming a Jew, is not going to cover it for me. Would you please? They're ready. Tell us what to do. And they did it. You get saved by believing in Jesus, and part of that means, I agree. I need it. I need it. And I agree, He can. He can save. He will save me if I were to believe in Him. That's what believe means. You're getting real close. It makes sense. I agree with that. I am a sinner. And I do believe what? I do believe this about Jesus. I do believe he can. I do believe he would. Oh, you're real close. You're not there. Because believe simply means you ultimately respond like God is telling the truth. Because you trust him. You don't just go, I believe he would. I believe he would save me. If I were to believe, I think he would save me. No, you're like, he will save me if I believe in him. Hello? I believe in you. Would you write this down? Believe in Him, in verse 43, means to choose to receive the free gift of God's salvation in a moment of time. Hear me, believing is in a moment of time. I'm not just saying how fast it happens. I'm saying that it happens at a specific time. These people were not saved before this. There was a moment of time as Peter's preaching, they put their faith in, in the gospel that was being preached and in the Jesus that was being preached. They put their faith, and immediately their sins are forgiven. they received the Holy Spirit. They did it on the spot. It is believing, it's acting as though, you know what? God's telling the truth. Here's faith. Hear me, everybody. Hear me. It's when you, in your heart, your soul, and your spirit, with everything in you, that says, I can't see God. And I can't see the salvation. But I know it's true and I receive it right now. I'll not see it even after I've taken it. But I know it is real. I now have eternal life. My sins are forgiven. I will not perish. I have been saved because I am putting my faith and trust in Christ. When you can't see it. You see, you can... I normally don't have a dollar in my pocket billfold. I did today. It's just a one. So here's Avery. I can say, Avery, I'm going to give you this. Sounds great. What has to happen for you to have it? Got to have it. Got to take it. Now you can see a dollar bill. You can see that and touch it. God, for you to get saved, says, hey, I'm going to save you. Just as he, with physical hand reached out, your soul and spirit has to tell God, I'm going to take it right now. Thank you. That's how you get saved. There are lessons to be learned. Let's finish with these four timeless lessons. I'm going to fly through the first two because they're really next week. Number one, the proof of salvation is having God's spirit. The proof of salvation is having God's spirit. That's number one. And we'll see that next week. Salvation isn't just saying, hey, I'm a Christian. You should see. They had in their time, and we're going to talk about it. There's a reason I, I knew I wouldn't have time to hit it this morning. We'll, we'll hit quickly. We're not going to dive into it deeply. We're going to touch on how they knew they had the Holy Spirit. But that's the proof. Do you have the evidence of the Holy Spirit? When you really get saved, Holy Spirit comes in your life. Number two, second, timeless principle number two. Private faith should quickly be made public. This is also next week's passage. But here's what that means. Someone sitting here this morning, minding their own business, believes what I've been preaching. And they literally believe it. They trust it. What's going to be made clear in next week's text is if that's ever you or if it has been you, you just don't keep that as a little secret. Yeah, I did that one time. I put my faith and trust in Jesus one time. Nope. You go let everybody know. Hey, y'all help me out. How do you let people know you became a Christian? You get baptized. And Mike will say, he'll ask you about three questions about Jesus. And you'll say, what's your confession? And you'll say, Jesus is Lord. Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord? Yes, I have. You go public. Now these last two, I want you to write them down. Lessons from Acts chapter 10. This could take 15 minutes. But I'm not. Number three. God uses altar calls. Let me be clear. God uses altar calls. Acts chapter 2 verse 40. Peter pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. From this wicked generation. Save yourselves. And I believe for those 3,000 people. I don't believe they all at one time. I believe they were more who? Who's going to put their faith and trust in Christ? Who's going to go public that you have done this and you're going to get baptized? And, and he pleaded with them. God uses altar calls, but he doesn't require them. He doesn't require them. Bless his heart. A lost man visited us about five, six weeks ago. He did two sessions of the four-lesson Bible study with two of our other elders. And then he quit. So I called to find out why he quit. And he ended up informing me I and you are not saved for multiple reasons. One of them is that to get saved, you got to be in an altar and you have to be on your knees, according to him. You have to be in an altar. I don't know what's magical about down here, but you got to be on your knees. I guess you can't get saved out there or at your house like some of you did or at a camp. I said, sir, nothing of what you're saying is in the Bible. And he gave me a... 803 number of some preacher in Columbia I'm like sir I don't have time I'll never convince that guy You're afraid to call him I'm like I'm not afraid to call your guy I'm just telling pleading with you He thought you We're all going to hell Because we're not using the King James too. Like sir That is not Anyway I don't want to get sidetracked on that guy In 1979 I know I got saved On a Wednesday night in June And when the call was made my granddad actually preaching that night, a call was made to come forward and there was only two sections and I was somewhere back in just like barely on the back row or the next to the back row. I got up and I went forward to this side and I met a fellow named Doug Wright and I prayed the sinner's prayer. God uses altar calls. Billy Graham, you've heard of him. I will not be shocked if when I get to heaven I find out I was actually saved back there. And I got up and came forward and I did that because, or maybe I got saved there. I don't know. I know I got saved that night. God could save me there. He could save me there. He could save me at home. He could save me riding down the road. He could save you on the side of the road of the Augusta Road experiences. Brother Gary has shared. Coming back from the Masters, I think, is, is, is where you were. And then lastly, this is important. God hears our every word. Listen, 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 listen. God hears your every word. God sees everything you've ever done. Hear me. God knows your every thought. You don't know your every thought. You don't know all your words. You forgot them. You forgot what you said this morning. God knows every word, every thought. He knows every feeling you have. He knows every desire. Write it down. God knows the exact moment that a person has unadulterated trust in Jesus. That's what he's looking for. The moment, as a nine-year-old boy, I had unadulterated trust in Jesus. I was not a theologian, still not. I knew enough, though. You say, Jeff, what does that unadulterated, what what does that mean? Is that about sexual? No, no, no. It means unmixed, undiluted. It means there is nowhere in your mind, not even that little hint in the back of your mind when you get saved, you're just putting your trust in Jesus only. You're not thinking like they would be tempted and i got to get circumcised. My baptism is going to finish it. No. Nothing else is in there. I'm just trusting Jesus. The Bible has said, Sirs, what do I have to do to be saved? He didn't go down a laundry list. He says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. That's when you get saved. When God looks, and He knows your heart, when God says in your heart, Nothing but faith in my Son. Holy Spirit, better get in there. Just got saved. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Many of us here today would say we've done that, right? Do you know that a lot of people never have that moment when they have unadulterated, unmixed, undiluted, simple faith in Christ only. Many never have it. But it happens in a moment of time. Has that happened in your life? Please don't lie. Nobody looking around, just me. I'm just the only one looking. And there's no way I can tell everyone. I'm asking you this question, has there been a time in your life where you know 100% there was a moment when you had unadulterated, unmixed, unmixed faith in Jesus only to save you? For me, that was age nine. If you know that has happened in your life, would you just raise your hand, just give a testimony by a raised hand, raise it up high and hold it up if you would, raise your hand if you could hold it up high, you're like, I have done that, I've put my faith and trust in Christ. Thank you. If you're here this morning and there's some hands that either didn't understand my question or you couldn't raise your hand. Could I plead with you? Heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm going to open my Bible one more time and I'm going to ask you this. Hear what the Bible says. To him, all the prophets bear witness. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Everyone who believes in Jesus, I'm going to ask you this morning, if you really, really believed that, what would you do? If you really believed, I'm going to be judged by God one day. I'm going to be judged by Jesus. He's not going to let my sin into heaven. I need to get saved. If I really in my heart believe that everybody, well what if I've done with everyone who believes in Jesus Receives forgiveness of their sins. If you really believe that, what would you do? I contend if you believe it, then you would trust in Jesus right now. And I encourage you right now. Right now, just bring God into your consciousness. Communicate with God. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. You can't slip one past him. And just tell God. Do you understand? I'm not going to take the time now, but if anyone's here like, Jeff, I I still don't understand it, then meet with me. Let's meet. If you're here this morning saying, oh, I get it, I understand it, but I I just don't want to do it, then I don't have anything for you. You're going to stand before Jesus. I can't help you. But if you're like, I do understand that and I do believe it, then I want to invite you right now, just you and God, just like Cornelius and his family on that day, just hear it and do it. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Father, I present these people to you. Very imperfectly because I did it. But Lord, I believe accurately because it's your word and you've shown me what to say. Father, every person in here has now heard the gospel clearly. They know when we get saved. Lord, would you give all of us in this room, and everybody watches this online, and everyone who ever will, my prayer, would you give us all the faith that is needed to believe verse 43 in John three sixteen, 16, and Acts 16, 31, and Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Father, would you please, don't let anybody walk out of here without putting their unadulterated faith in Jesus. Lord, give us those forgiveness of sins and that eternal life and the gift of your Holy Spirit. Father, if anyone does not understand, I pray that you would give them the courage to care about their own soul enough to come seek some further study so we could help them. Father, I close my prayer this morning with this. Everybody who has ever in their past put their faith in Christ or has done it this morning. Lord, I pray if they have not been baptized, I pray that you would cause them to want to go public with what you've already done in their life. Give them that courage and boldness and let them just get a bulletin, write their name down. Say, I need to get baptized. Drop it in the box. And when we ask them their testimony, maybe it was another time, but Lord, maybe it was this morning. I pray that you'd give us clarity in that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. Have a great week.